I grew up Baptist, and you said good morning, and people are like, good morning, Pat, good morning. Thank you, John. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be closing out the second chapter in the first half of the book of Philippians today, looking at verses 19 through 30. Uh, a couple things to start. Uh, first, John mentioned it, but we want to welcome back Camden and Morgan. They just got back from their honeymoon, uh, and we've rejoiced with them in their marriage. We're happy they're back. And also, after the service, if you bump into Camden, it's his Taylor Swift birthday. Uh, so he's feeling 22 today, so give him a little you know, slug on the shoulder uh, if you run into him. Uh, but we're glad to have you guys back. Uh, and another thought, as we were singing the last song, uh, that last verse before the last chorus uh, says, raised with him to endless life. And that's the position of the believer. Uh, if you are in Christ today, you've been raised to endless life. And that's not later on. You, you currently have been raised with Christ, and you're going to be living with the church for eternity. And so it's going to inform a lot of what we look at today. Uh, specifically, we're honing in on one phrase. Uh, we're covering 11 verses, but we're honing in on one very important phrase. It's Philippians 2.20, uh, and Paul reads uh, in the text, and he's speaking about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for the welfare of the church. At first read, this might seem like a throwaway line, uh, but I'm going to put forward that this is actually the key idea and phrase in this whole section of the text. So we need to ask ourselves some questions today as we approach the text. We need to ask, what does it mean to be genuinely concerned? Specifically, what does it mean to be genuinely concerned for the church, for the people of God? So to look for answers to these questions, we're going to read the text now. So if you have your Bible, look at me, or look at it with me, verses 19 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I know or as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you've heard that he was, he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had a mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we approach the text this morning. I pray that you would open every heart in this room, my heart and all those listening, to receive the truths you have for us. Uh, that we wouldn't check out, uh, that no matter how late we stayed up last night or how busy our day was or how stressful or painful our week was, we would come hungry for the words of life, and that specifically this week we would hear what it is to be genuinely concerned for your bride, for the people of God. Would you speak through me, uh, and would you teach us all today what you have for us in the text, in Christ's name, amen. So the first thing that we notice 
after reading this text, I hope anyways, if you're paying attention, is that this is strikingly different than just about everything else we've heard so far in the book of Philippians. Paul has not done any encouraging, exhorting. He hasn't unpacked an extreme theological complex. He hasn't uh, burst into Christological song. Rather, he's stepping aside from his complex arguments, uh, and he's speaking to his friends. It's correspondence. This is much more of what you'd imagine when you think a letter, right? He's writing to the Philippian church, and specifically, he's speaking to them about two men. He's talking about sending Timothy and Epaphroditus. And if you're like me on Monday, the temptation to this text is just to read it for what it is and skip it over and say, all right, these are dead people that were writing letters to each other 2,000 years ago. It's neat. I'm glad they visited each other. I'm glad they liked each other. Let's get back to the doctrine. That's, that's a, gross, uh, a gross misvaluing of the Bible. Uh, if we look really closely, there's, there are gems to be found in this text, specifically gems of what it is to love the church and gems that tell us about the character of our God. So our roadmap today is going to be really simple, and it's guiding, uh, we're, we're looking around this central question that we talked about just a minute ago, what does it mean to be genuinely concerned for the church? So our roadmap is this, we're going to look at verse 19 first, we're going to look at Paul, and how Paul was genuinely concerned for the church, then we're going to look at verses 20 through 24, and we're going to see Timothy, and how Timothy was genuinely concerned for the church, and then in verses 25 through 30, we're going to look at Epaphroditus and see how he was genuinely concerned for the church. So we're going to look at Paul, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus, and we're going to see how this theme of concern for the welfare of the people of God runs through, and we're going to see if we can apply this to our lives. So the text begins with Paul telling the church of Philippi, he says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Who is Timothy? If you remember all the way back four months ago to the first sermon on Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, the letter is actually addressed from Paul and Timothy to the believers in Philippi and to the elders. So he had something to do with the writing of, of this letter. Uh, but Acts 16, our context chapter, right, for the, for the whole letter to the Philippians, uh, tells us more about Timothy. Paul recruited Timothy while he was in Lystra. Uh, and actually, Acts 16, chapter 2, shows us a little bit that Timothy was a man of strong character. It says in Acts 16, 2, uh, that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And actually, all throughout the Bible, Paul refers to Timothy as his true child of the faith, his, his warrior, his fellow worker. Timothy is, is Paul's right-hand man throughout the New Testament. Um, and, and so after he was recruited in Lystra, Paul and Timothy continue on Paul's second missionary journey, which almost the next stop is the planting of the church in Philippi. Uh, and so Paul and Timothy planted the church, and clearly now Paul is in Rome, so he's moved on. Uh, but it's actually, it's pretty standard practice for Paul to send Timothy back to churches that they've already planted. Uh, it's kind of a second wave as a fixer, as, as, a, as a helper, almost a, a, an elder on loan. Um, I, the way I like to think about the way Paul talks about Timothy is, Timothy is Paul's closing pitcher. Paul's the starter. He gets there. He plants the church. He starts the game. Uh, he braises up people, but if there's a problem, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're up by one run in the bottom of the ninth and there's men on base, you want to send Timothy. Timothy's the guy, he goes, uh, in the Bible we see him in the book of Corinthians, he goes to the church in Corinth uh, to help them solve their problems, because they had a lot of them. In the book of Thessalonians, we see Timothy also there. And actually the whole, the book of 1 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy to instruct on how uh, to help with major problems in the Ephesian church. That was the context of the book of 1 Timothy. So Timothy is Paul's closing pitcher. He's a well-spoken of man, he's a great friend, he's a loving minister, and a trustworthy aid to Paul. 
So it makes us ask the question, as Paul says, I'm going to send them to you. Why is Paul sending such a helpful asset to the Philippians? Remember, Paul is in a city with a church currently. Now, he's in prison, but there's a, there's a church in Rome. Paul probably needs all the help he can get, especially since he's locked up. But he's sending them to Philippi, so why? Are the Philippians besought with false teachers? Are there legal disputes where Christians are suing each other? Was the church in desperate need of good leadership in Philippi? But if we finish verse 19, the full verse reads, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul was willing to send his most faithful helper and servant and friend and warrior for the gospel away simply to hear news from his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's because he loves them. Timothy is not being sent to fix some large-scale problem because if we remember in this book, the Philippians, are, they're kind of the mature church. Of all of the letters Paul writes, the Philippians get the most praise and continue on, press on, continue to outdo one another in love. Uh, and yet Paul longs for them. He wants, he wants to hear from them and that to him that's worth sending away his most valuable helper. This doesn't make sense to our Western minds. In business, you don't send away uh, your best workers uh, to the branch that's doing fine. <laughs> you don't do that. Uh, in war, you don't send your best general away to the, to the army that's doing fine, right? You need good leaders where there's, where there's trouble. Uh, but Paul loves them enough to send his best. Matthew 6, 21, I was reading earlier this week, and it's Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart lies also. And I think it's clear from the text that Paul's treasure... And his heart lies with the brothers and sisters in the church of Philippi. Paul delighted in them. And he did it in both word and deed. Paul didn't just send them a love letter saying, I love you guys, you're the best, thank you so much for the money and the prayers and the support. Paul sacrifices for them. This is a mature and a godly way to view the church. But it can be difficult to obtain. We often fail to love the people of God this way. If we struggle to love the people of God, what can we do? One practical way to look at it in this point is we need to tackle our identity problem. Identity is very important. If we're struggling to, to love the people of God, we need to take a look at her identity. Now, in, in probably the best trilogy of all time, the original Star Wars trilogy, the main bad guy is Darth Vader. We all know him because he's iconic. He's probably top two bad guys in the history of fiction. Uh, and, and if you watch the first two movies, episode four and five, or one and two if you're a purist, um, there's not much sympathy for Darth Vader. Darth Vader is this terrifying, imposing, evil figure, and all of the main characters, Han, Luke, and Leia, and the rest, they all are just terrified of Darth Vader. They're angry. They want to defeat Darth Vader. Luke's, Luke's words are like, man, I just need to get strong enough that I can defeat Vader, Right? But something very interesting happens uh, at the end of the fifth... I'm going to spoil Star Wars. It came out in like the 60s, so... Um, at the end of the fifth movie, Luke, Luke uh, learns that Darth Vader is his father. Yeah, that's right. Gasp. Uh, and it's, it's one of the most incredible twists in cinema history. But something interesting happens if you look past the shock of the moment and you look into the beginning of the sixth movie. Then, right? The movie ends, Darth Vader's your father, holy cow, what do we do? But then in the sixth movie, Luke starts to say things. He throws little dialogue lines in that you can catch. He says, like, I know there's still good in him. I know somewhere Anakin Skywalker, that old Jedi, is still there. That was not present in the first two movies. 
for some reason, as soon as Luke found out that Vader was his father, a, a, a touch of father-son love enters into the equation, and, and there's empathy grown. And actually, from that empathy, at the end of the movie, at the end of the last film, we see the fruit of redemption born out. See, George Lucas understood when he wrote this that, that when we as humans don't know the identity of somebody or something, it's very easy to keep them at arm's length. We demonize, we fear, and we push away what we don't know. But as soon as we stare into the depths of the humanity of somebody, when we understand who they are and where they come from, it becomes increasingly harder to hate and to, and to dislike and to fail to love something. And you see, tying this back in, I promise, Paul saw the Philippians for who they were. I, don't get confused. Paul doesn't love the Philippians because they were great cooks and because they were very generous with their money. <laughs> Those were nice but Paul's a bit more mature than that. Paul loved the Philippians because he looked at them and he saw who they were. They were children of God, bought by the blood of Jesus. They were the reason Jesus died and he loved them for it. And so when we fail to love the church, when we fail to love the other people in this room, the first thing we can do is, is remind ourselves of their identity. We can look past their humanity, past their sin and their frustration uh, and, and, and the things, the rough edges and look to who they are. Christ's bride. Fellow heirs with Christ. Paul did this, and it caused him to sacrifice his best helper simply to hear how they were doing. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look past their, their worldly exterior to their identity that Christ bought for them. And love them as Jesus did. That's what Paul was doing. How did Paul genuinely, how was he genuinely concerned the church? How, what does it mean for us to be genuinely concerned for the church? We're supposed to long for the church with love. That's the first thought, but we move to verses 20 through 24 to look at Timothy. See, Paul showed his genuine concern for the church by longing for them with love because he understood who they were. But what about Timothy? Look at verses 20 through 22. Paul says of Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Two things right off the bat we get. Timothy's rare. Timothy is a rare breed, according to Paul. But he's, he's rare... Because of his concern. This is, this is the verse where we got the idea, the phrase of genuine concern. Lest we misunderstand verse 20, though, we need to understand that Paul is actually rebuking the church here in a gentle way. When he says, there's none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, he's not saying, you know, there's not a lot of Christians right now. Jesus only died a couple years ago, and the world doesn't really care about you, church. He's saying, no, I'm surrounded by Christians in Rome. All right, there's a church in Rome. And, and helpers and attendants, and of all these people, there is no one like Timothy who will genuinely be concerned for the church. Genuine concern is rare, but why? Verse 21 tells us, look at verse 21. It says, for they, meaning everybody else around Paul, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I think we need to pause for a moment this morning and sit in that rebuke. Paul was surrounded by the church of Rome and presumably many Christians, and they were all seeking their own interests instead of those of Jesus. 
the biggest obstacle for you and me in loving the church is our own selfish ambition and interests. This is why earlier, just a couple verses earlier, Paul had already warned the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. He doesn't give warnings that aren't important. He gives the warning because at our heart, we are hardwired to get distracted by our own interests, to be distracted by the things that we want and to miss those things that Christ wants. Christian, where does your time go? Where do your affections go? Whose interests capture your heart? Are you concerned chiefly with your own welfare, with what you'll eat, with what you'll drink, with what you'll wear, with how much fun you can have, how financially responsible and stable you can be, with what college you can get your children into, with how early you can retire? Do these things take up the crux of your mind? Or is your mind fixed on the interests of Jesus? If you look closely at verse 21... Paul says that everyone else is interested in themselves, not what Jesus wants. Except for Timothy, who is, in fact, interested in the welfare of the church. And you might be a little bit confused by the way he words that. Which is it, Paul? Are we supposed to be interested in the the welfare, what Jesus is interested in, or the welfare of the church? Those seem different. This is kind of a linchpin for this sermon. So if you hear nothing else, hear this. Jesus' interests are the welfare of his church. We should already know this. Paul's, been, Paul's basically just repeating what he said for the first two chapters. Earlier in the book, he said Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death. Why? Why did Jesus do that? He did it for you. He did it for me, and he did it for all those who would be called into his church. You know, there are only two things that the Bible reports the Godhead was doing before the foundations of time. If we look throughout the whole Bible, we can only find two actions that the Father, Son, and the Spirit were engaging in that are recorded in the Bible before creation, before time. The first is in John 17, 24, and Jesus makes it clear that the Father loved him before the foundations of time. The Trinity was loving themselves, the only entity that can love themselves in a non-selfish way, Right? But out of that comes the second thing that the Godhead was doing before time. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 reads, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Before time, the Godhead was loving themselves, and out of that, they were loving the church. They elected his people and predestined them for holiness before we even had a chance. The only thing the Bible tells us about God's action before time is that he loved the church. And we know this is backed up very clearly because God sent Christ to earth to die for the church. So, so there can't be any confusion in this. Jesus' interests are the welfare of the church. Ours need to be as well. You see, what made Timothy a standout member of Paul's team was not that Timothy was an incredible orator. Timothy isn't told to have been particularly strong and ferocious. 
Uh, he's not even described explicitly as a good problem solver. I assume he was because he got sent so many places. But, but the reason that Paul puts for Timothy being a unique and honorable man is because he had genuine love for the people of God. He loved them enough to put their interests above his own. And because of that, Paul said he had no one like Timothy. Are you genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church? Brothers and sisters, when a prayer request pops up on your phone for the 14th time that week, stop what you're doing, take a moment and pray. When there's a need in the body, do all in your power to fill that need. When a brother or sister needs to be listened to, sacrifice your time and listen to your brother and sister. Look to the interests of others because these are the interests of Jesus. What does it mean to be genuinely concerned for the church? Verse 19 told us it's to long for them with love. And these verses tell us that we're to seek the interests of Jesus, which is the welfare of his church. So Paul continues in verses 23 and 24, saying, I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I will see how it will go with me. And I trust that the Lord, <clears throat> I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And he's going to then transition to the next man he's sending to the Philippians. We've seen Paul, we've seen Timothy. Now it's time for the, the difficult one to pronounce, Epaphroditus. Took me a couple days of practice. Verse 25 introduces us, introduces us to Epaphroditus. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. See, unlike, uh, unlike Timothy and Paul, Epaphroditus is actually a native of Philippi. We, we run into, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 of Philippians, we're going to see that Epaphroditus was the messenger who the Philippians sent with their financial gift to Paul. So they sent Epaphroditus to Paul. He received the gift, but he's more than a messenger. Paul calls him a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. It's clear that Paul loved, respected, and appreciated Epaphroditus. Paul doesn't throw away compliments uselessly. So not only is Paul sending away Timothy, his, his right-hand man, but he's also sending away this really helpful messenger who was sent to aid Paul. Why? Why does Paul seem to have a weird obsession with sending away anyone who could possibly help him while he sits in jail? Let's read verses 26 through 28. Paul says about Epaphroditus, For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. All right, gentlemen, men, bear with me. We're going to get a little bit soft and emotional. For the next point. Humble yourselves. Jesus was an emotional guy. He wept. My favorite Bible verse. Paul the Apostle, the most renowned missionary of all time, the biggest church planter in the New Testament, the apologist who stood up against kings and armies and mobs and preached the gospel without fear, that Paul sent away his two best generals, his two best closing pitchers, his two best helpers, because he wanted to ease the emotional pain of his friends. You see, Epaphroditus had been sick, and the text says he was near death. 
And then God healed him, got him out of it. He, he survived a tragic sickness. People had heard in Philippi that he was sick. And Paul, rather than muscling through this and saying it doesn't matter what they think, we've got a lot of work to do here. There's a lot of people that need reaching in Rome. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even send a messenger just to be like, hey, he's fine. Paul, because he loves the people, desires. And Paul and Epaphroditus agree on this. They care so much about the hearts of the Philippians that they agreed to separate in order to ease the pain of their friends in Philippi. This has to mean something to us today. And this particular point hit me really hard this week as I studied this this idea right here, that it's simply not enough to serve people's needs. True love is more than service. The Philippians did not need to have Epaphroditus back with them, right? A simple, he's okay now, you know, ancient telegram would have worked. That would have been good. But Paul didn't just care about their need, he cared about their heart, about their emotions, about their pain. Verse 26 says that Epaphroditus was distressed because people thought he was sick. Paul says that it made him all the more want to send Epaphroditus away that they might receive him with joy. These men were concerned for the hearts and the emotions of their brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not like that. If, if you need a meal cooked, if you need your lawn mowed, if you need a ride somewhere, man, I am so quick to, to, to be all over that. But I am so often find myself lacking in a heart, emotional love, and empathy for the brothers. I hear of problems, and I'm like, mm, that's tough. And I go about my day. And that's not what Paul has for the believers. I am often guilty of not caring for the hearts and the emotions of the church. Are you guilty of this? Do you seek the interests of others not only by serving them, but by caring for their hearts? Somebody might ask in the back, why are we paying so much attention to their hearts and their emotions? Aren't, it doesn't the Bible say the heart is deceitful above all else? Aren't emotions the core of a lot of our sin? Doesn't often our emotions lead us into problems? Why would we cater to those It's a great question. Certainly, we need to check and correct our emotions uh, and our hearts with God's law, but if we think that God is not concerned with the hearts and the emotions of His people, then we haven't heard what the Bible says about God. A few passages. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. God draws near to those who are brokenhearted. In Mark... When, the, uh, when Jesus has just done a, a miraculous miracle and he's proven who he is, the disciples are horrified. And rather than moving on in triumph, Jesus takes a moment in Mark 60, verse 5, or <laughs> Mark 6, verse 50. Uh, and he says, um, <clears throat> Because they all saw him and they were terrified, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Jesus cares for the fears of his disciples. In the book of Judges, Gideon is sent out to battle by God. God says, go and save the people of Israel. I'll be with you. And Gideon's afraid. And he says, God, I, I'd love to trust you. I know there's thousands of years of history of, of, of you working for the people, but would you please do a sign for me? And God, rather than immediately smiting him on the spot for having the, the arrogance to ask that question, does a sign for Gideon. And then after the sign, Gideon's, I'm afraid, God, please don't be angry Will you give me one more sign? And God bears with Gideon and his fearful heart 
and he condescends to provide a second sign for the deliverer of his people. God was concerned for the heart of Gideon. And then when Lazarus died, probably the most visceral picture of Jesus and his heart for us. Jesus was truly grieved. And as he's surrounded by those crying for Lazarus, fully knowing that Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus sits and he weeps. And the people around him said, man, the text says, see how he loved him. Our God is concerned for the hearts of his people. He's absolutely concerned with our final destination and making sure we get to heaven to be with him and he's bought us with the blood of Christ, but he's also concerned with our hearts. So as we strive to love the church, as we strive to seek the interests of other people, we must not forget to care for their hearts as well. The Savior's method of discipleship was not one of emotional distance. Yes, hearts and emotions can be sinful, and if you're in a relationship and there is sinful emotion coming out of somebody, we get to call it out in love and to lovingly and gently tell somebody, I don't believe that your heart is in line with the Scriptures right now, but this is done in the context of emotional intimacy and love, not a distant rebuke. God loves His people. He longs for them. He seeks their best interest, which is His interest, and He stewards their hearts well. And we're called to do the same. We need this holistic picture of love. Love is not simply longing for people. It's not simply serving people. And it's not simply caring for their hearts. It's holistic. So what does it mean to be genuinely concerned for the church? It means to long for them in love. It means to seek Christ's interests. And it means to steward the church's heart well. That seems like a lot. That's That's three very individually difficult tasks lumped into one. Can we really long for the church, seek its interests, steward its heart well? We can barely love our families well enough. We can barely love our friends well enough. Let alone everybody at Living Hope and the church global. Paul knew this was a difficult task, and so he sends Timothy and Epaphroditus to be examples. The love of the church is not a small issue. It's a big one. Worth sending these two men. In verse 29 through 30, Paul says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul tells the church two things as he closes the text. He says, Receive him in joy and honor such men. So as we prepare to close today, a good first step for us as living hope is to identify those in the body that are doing better than we are at this. Some people are doing better at loving the church than we are. And a good first step for us this week practically is to look around us and say, who's doing this? And then receive them in joy and honor these men. And while very far from perfect and probably mad at me for saying this, your pastor John is an excellent example of one of these kinds of men. He looks for your interests. He longs for you with love. He stewards your hearts. I can't tell you how many prayer meetings, how many staff meetings, how many casual lunches I've been at, and John has been weighed down with love by the needs and the wants and the joys of the body. He loves you guys. One time, my sister had called me, and her cat had just died. And she was crying, and man, I'm a sucker for cats, and I'm a sucker for my sister, and so I start crying over this cat. And I call John afterwards, and John cries with me over my sister's cat. John cried over the phone 
for a secondhand cat that he'd never met. Because he loves me. And he loves you. So don't let the week go by without receiving John with joy and honoring him for the love which he loves us with. That's a good starting point. But obviously the Christian life, those of us who want to step into Christian maturity, we can't just sit and honor the people who are doing it. We need to also pray and step up and attempt this for ourselves. If you see older brothers and sisters in the faith succeeding in this gospel-centered love, pray for strength and then strive to make it your own. Because Christ died that we might love the church and that we might be one with him as he and the Father are one. One final thought on love today. You might be listening to this sermon and you might say, that's a lot of love talk. You might have the, uh, the Beatles application from this sermon. All you need is love. And I'll add one caveat to John Lennon. Yes, today's text is almost entirely about loving the church. But love that is separated from Christ and separated from the truth of Scripture is not true love. Any love that is not grounded and rooted in the blood of Christ has to still face the final enemy of death. You could love your wife excellently for 52 years until you both pass away. But if that love is not steeped in the sacrifice of Jesus, it's going to die with your bodies. You could love your friends for a lifetime. But if that love is not a reflection and an overflow of the love of God shown to you through Jesus, that love is going to die. It's destined for death. And you can love the church through faithful service and longing every week until Christ returns. But if that serving love is not pointing others and yourself to the ultimate love of Jesus, it can only feed and clothe bodies destined for destruction. We must love people from a position of knowing the love of God for us. Because God loved his people, he sent to die for them. There was no greater cost to the Father than Jesus. And for all those who call upon the name of Jesus, they get to enter into this amazing love of the Father. The Bible says it simply and best, we love because he first loved us. If you are his, then he sends his Holy Spirit to work in your soul that you may too love the body better and better and better. But if you do not belong to him, that's step two. Step one is to recognize the love of God for his people and to fall on your knees and ask for it. Say, Father, I need you. I need to be in the good graces of the Father. Call upon the name of the Lord and experience the love of the Father. And from there, Paul says to those who seek to be mature Christians, be genuinely concerned for the church. Look at the love that God has for his church and then long for the church, seek the interests of the church, and steward her heart well. Let's pray. Father, this is a task too great for any of us to do perfectly or even close to perfectly. To truly and perfectly and, and holistically love your body and all those in this room and all those around the world who profess your name is too much for us. But we thank you with great thankfulness that it was not too much for Christ. And then on the cross, in his sacrifice and his death and resurrection and his current intercession, he is loving perfectly the church that he bought. 
I pray that that truth would be on the forefront of our minds this week as we go out, as we scatter back to more weeks of work, that we would be consumed with the interests of Jesus, that we would serve others and that we would look to their hard interests. Would you give us wisdom this week as we seek to apply this text, and would you keep us humble knowing that we love because you first loved us? Grant us grace to go out into this world and to shine as lights in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.